when I got locked up, I just hit that wall and I became just incredibly dedicated to doing something with my life to start giving back and to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or his dad died in prison. And I realized I had to embrace my spiritual life with much greater rigor. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Here's this week's story in a nutshell. Kid comes of age in the turbulent 60s, anti-authority, drops out, travels, spends time in Peru, becomes a heavy drug user, graduates to smuggling and then even drug dealing, gets caught, goes to prison, doubles down in prison on his Buddhist practices, survives, and upon leaving prison, dedicates his life to living a Buddhist lifestyle, starts training others, offering seminars on mindfulness and meditation, becomes a book author, now an entrepreneur, bringing his mindfulness practice to multiple audiences in the form of workshops. That's the story of Fleet Mall, my guest on this episode of the SIDCast. I mean, it's an American story, an arc of a life that you could almost see as if it was on a Netflix series, or if you've seen the Chicago 7 movie, you get the feeling of what it was like. And some people will remember it firsthand, what it was like in the counterculture movement in the 1960s, protesting Vietnam, protesting capitalism, protesting mainstream life. I was just a little kid, and actually a kid in Canada, not in the U.S. in the 60s. But I do remember seeing the, uh, the nightly news and the stories and the trauma and the protests. You know, from there to uh, leaving mainstream society at that time, it's actually not that hard to imagine. And uh, after many years to return to mainstream society, in one of the most mainstream ways, becoming an entrepreneur makes for a fascinating transformation. I had lots and lots of questions for Fleet. Why did he become a drug dealer? I mean, who does that? How could you have been living a spiritual life, which he was, at the same time as you were dealing drugs? How do you reconcile those two? What was prison really like? His son was nine years old when he was sentenced to prison. What happened to him? Did he visit you? Did he forgive you? How did you make the transition? How do you do it psychologically? What do you tell people now? I mean, we've had on the SIDCast many many different types of people with different backgrounds, experiences, and lives. And that's really been one of the most enjoyable aspects of the podcast for me, having this variety, getting to talk to so many different types of people, learning, gaining insight into their lives, learning how they ended up the way they ended up. And many of these lives is stuff of drama. I'm thinking of Kate Spear, the CEO of the Doggist, which was episode number 34 back in October of 2019. And by the way, the most popular episode I ever did might be worth looking into. You know, my guest in this episode of the SIDCast Fleet Mall reminds me the most of Warwick Fairfax, which is uh, episode actually number 26 that I released in August of 2019, which I subtitled The Billionaire Who Lost His Company. In both instances, some really bad decisions were made. Now, I don't want to equate them, but they were both really bad. I mean, financial transactions that cost hundreds of millions of dollars and drug dealing that hurt many people, they're not the same. Not to mention, of course, that drug dealing is illegal and losing millions of dollars, while not highly recommended, is not an illegal activity. But in both cases, Fleet and Warwick paid a really, really huge price. And I think they both have learned from that failure. Both have tried and continue to try to resurrect their lives to do something good and something meaningful. And that's interesting. And that's why I wanted Fleet Mall to be here, to be uh, talking to everyone as my guest on the SIDCast. He is the co-founder and CEO of Windhorse Seminars and the Engage Mindfulness Institute. He has many clients and does a lot of different work with different types of audiences. A lot of people benefiting these days on uh, mindfulness practice, especially now in 2020, to feel the need to kind of get our heads straight. He's a senior Dharma teacher in two venerable Buddhist traditions. He's been involved in, uh, in this field, teaching mindfulness meditation for more than 35 years, practicing for more than 45 years. He's the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. And he had an earlier book called Dharma in Hell. 
the prison writings of Fleet Mall. You get a feeling for my guest today on the Sidcast and how interesting and powerful his story is. So let's bring him into the Sidcast studio via Zoom and Squadcast and get on with the show. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's great to be with everyone once again. And my guest today is Fleet Mall. Hello, Fleet. Hi, Sid. Great to be here. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Very good to meet you as well. And I hope you're managing and dealing with the world of COVID best as anyone can. You have a really interesting background. And of course, that's why I was excited to have you uh, join me on the show and talk about many, many things. But I'm going to start with what I suspect uh, most people are going to be wondering about, which is, of course, what happened that got you into prison, where you were sentenced to 25 years. You ended up serving 14 years in prison. I mean, what happened? What did you do? Well, I'm going to try to give you the crib notes version of that. So um, during the 60s and 70s, I had this winding confused path of always being a spiritual seeker, really focused on educating and training myself, really focused on a path of meditation, and at the same time being caught up in all the counterculture, drug, sex, and rock and roll, and uh, as well as the anti-war politics of the area. Basically, I came out of high school. I graduated high school in 1968 as a kind of classic angry young man, and I'd kind of become very alienated with everything that had been happening during my coming-of-age years with all the assassinations and the civil rights movement and kind of burning bridges behind me and looking for something that felt real. You know, and I'd been trained not to think for myself. I was trained, you follow this path, you'll be okay. If you don't, you're not going to be okay. And so I didn't follow that path and was kind of literally burning those bridges and just looking for something that was real. So that became a confusing journey. And before I could untangle it all, I, I ended up earning my way into a uh, federally funded sabbatical of sorts. <laughs> I actually don't mean to make light of that because I actually have deep regrets about what I ended up getting involved in. I, I left the country uh, because I was basically when Nixon was reelected to his second term, there were a lot of contributing factors, but I just kind of had it. I felt really alienated. I had this very us versus them mindset going on, you know, like that world was hypocritical and I and others thinking like myself somehow had some kind of truth. And so I left the country and was uh, traveling throughout Latin America, kind of being driven out of the country by my reaction to what was going on, but also seeking something. I was really seeking something real. And somehow I had this notion that I was going to find it in Peru. And it took me a long time to get to Peru. And then You know, I traveled throughout Central America and Latin America. I spent nine months living on a sailboat in the Caribbean, but I eventually got there and it was an incredibly magical place. But I realized the first time I came back that I couldn't bring that magic with me. And so that was the journey. And eventually I got into small scale drug smuggling to kind of live outside the system and continue to live this expat life. Uh, Eventually I wanted to go back to a university in the States to really pursue the path of meditation because I was trying to do it on my own, study on my own, way up in the mountains and little grass roof adobe hut up in uh, the mountains of Peru. And, you know, I was just struggling trying to do it on my own. And when I heard about the founding of then Naropa Institute, now Naropa University, I, I just realized I had to go there. So I did go, but if I funded that with this part-time involvement in smuggling drugs and Today, I have deep regrets about my involvement with that and the negative impact my involvement with that may have had on I don't know how many people getting addicted to drugs and damage to themselves and their families and so forth. So I have deep regrets about that. But I do feel good about what I did with my time because once I got locked up, it was clear to me. I mean, one thing, my son was nine years old at the time and I just hit a complete wall in terms of realizing what I'd done to him and and his mom and how I'd let my family down and my spiritual lineage, my spiritual teachers down and what I'd done to myself for that matter. I was originally given a 30-year no parole sentence, 30-year no parole. And the day of my sentencing, I was facing life with no parole, potentially. And I got 30. Eventually, that was reduced to 25. took about three years for my appeal to wind its way through the courts. And they knocked off one count, which should have thrown out the sentence. I should have gotten a new trial, but I didn't. But at any rate, it got reduced to 25. And fortunately, I was sentenced under the old law prior to 1987 when they still had a lot of good time. And so I had to serve 14 and a half on 25 if I stayed out of trouble. Uh, If you get in trouble while you're in prison, they start taking that good time away from you in chunks and you can end up serving You know, some people end up serving their whole sentence day for day, they call it, right? Fortunately, I managed to stay out of trouble uh, with strong intentionality and staying busy, but also some luck. 
and I was able to just do the 14 years inside and then six months in a halfway house and, and on house arrest. So I served 14 and a half years from 85 to 99. But when I got locked up, I just hit that wall and I became just incredibly dedicated to doing something with my life to start giving back and to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or his dad died in prison. And I realized I had to embrace my spiritual life with much greater rigor. Uh, I'd been a serious practitioner, but kind of a lot of retreats, a lot of programs, but also had this crazy life when I wasn't doing that. And I had ignored the ethical foundations of the Buddhist tradition I was involved in. So I realized I had to embrace that and uh, build a new life based on that ethical foundation. And I was practicing like my hair was on fire. So that place became my monastery for 14 years. But it was also a place of tremendous suffering. So it became a place of service because I did my time at the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, which is in Springfield, Missouri. It's the maximum security federal prison. So all the patients, all medical patients that need medical care are brought from the highest level federal penitentiaries like Lompoc and Lewisburg and Atlanta, places like that, are brought to that facility for medical treatment. And in 1985, the AIDS epidemic, which is moving into full swing. So this place was a place, it's also a psychiatric facility. So it's really a hell realm, place of tremendous suffering. So mm. it became a journey, real journey for me, a real transformational journey there. Unfortunately, I was able to to do some good with that time. Unbelievable. So it's just hard to understand, right? And I'm sure you've dealt with this. Obviously, you've dealt with this extensively. But, you know, and we'll talk about what you're doing now and the work that you're doing now. Did it just kind of fall in that you started to get involved with drug smuggling? It just sounds so strange, given who you are and what you've done since then, that this would have been okay for you to do. Yeah, well, I was pretty out there back then. Of course, I was justifying it with a lot of us versus them thinking, you know, but, you know, I got involved in hardcore drug experimentation and drug use in college. I just went full blown into that whole countercultural experience. And uh, I was uh, an IV drug user and, you know, just doing ungodly amounts of just everything of that time, all the psychoactive drugs and everything else. And in some ways I left the country. I described some of the reasons I left the country, became an expat before. But another reason was to get away from the craziness of the drug scene. And actually, my involvement in South America was much less focused on drugs and most of the time not focused on drug use at all, periodically right. sometimes, but not so much. But, you know, it just became an easy excuse to get involved in, uh, you know, I met this person and that person and somebody, I had a connection, they wanted this, and I just fell into a pattern. I wasn't trying to get rich doing it. I would make a few thousand dollars and I could live for another year in Peru on that. So I was doing it like that just to keep living outside the system. And I justified it with this kind of us versus them thinking. In fact, at that time, I was so, you know, this is so self-deluded that I actually felt it was a noble calling, you know, <laughs> Which is really? hard to believe, hard to imagine, but yeah. you know, like I would have never gotten involved in dealing heroin, but somehow I thought cocaine was okay at that time. You know, we thought of it as a social drug and whatever. I was very interested in mind and experimenting with mind on drugs and all that, you know. But I mean, all that was a bunch of self delusion. It was actually after I got locked up, I did hit that wall of devastation about my son primarily and many other things, but I immediately got involved. I had enough sense to get involved in 12 step work. Immediately, fortunately, they had a good 12-step group there, AA and NA, and uh, I knew I needed to deal with my own substance abuse issues, so I got involved in that right away. And it wasn't until after about a year of weekly meetings of listening to one, there was a male prison, listening to one man, one of my fellow prisoners after another, talk about their life unraveling around drugs, their families' lives unraveling around drugs, that all my artifices of justification finally completely fell away. And I had to face the fact that I'd been involved in something extremely harmful and really face that. And at that point, my really deepest longing motivation became to begin with just to cause no more harm and then hopefully be able to do some good, but really to begin with passionate just to cause no more harm. And in some ways, even though, you know, I think our lives are always spiritual in some context, and I'd certainly been on an intentional spiritual journey for a while, but in many ways, I feel like my path really began at that point with that commitment to no longer cause any harm and then to try to add value where I could. Fleet, what was your upbringing like? I mean, you grew up middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class? A mix. I don't know if you're old enough to remember shows like Leave it to Beaver and, you know, that kind of white collar somewhere between working class and middle class. You know, sure. that's kind of how I grew up. 
my family did have a family business, but they came out of the depression and, you know, World War II and the depression. And, you know, so it was just eking along when I was young. It was right in there, but they started doing better. And, uh, you know, eventually on my mother's side, her father, my grandfather was a self-made person with, you know, relative wealth, not huge wealth, but relative wealth. So she inherited some, and, and the company started doing better. So after I left, they became more upper middle class eventually. And, mm-hmm. but I had kind of already bailed out by that time. So, you know, middle-class upbringing, Roman Catholic, a lot of good values. Um, we did have alcoholism in my family. And, and, you know, I think in my early childhood that created some of the demons I had and some of the holes in my gut that I was trying to fill. But apart from that, a good family with good values. And, uh, you know, and I had rejected all that. You know, I was one of those counterculture types that just walked away from my parents' culture, just rejected the whole thing, right? And uh, it wasn't until years later that I really had a deep appreciation for all I'd received from my family. To the rest of my days, you know, I'm going to try to add value where I can, like based on what I received from them, as well as what I've received from my various spiritual teachers. So did you, and do you have a relationship with members of your family today? Yeah, I lost my parents, sadly. My dad actually died five months before I got out of prison and my mom five months after. They both died of cancer. And that was really tough because I wanted them to see me outside of prison. And my dad at that point knew I was getting out. And I think he was confident that I'd be okay, that I'd really turned my life around uh, with the things I'd done while I was in prison. And my mom did get to see me out just very briefly. But still, it was very painful because I was looking forward to, you know, being part of their life and them being part of my life. So they've been both gone for a long time. I've been out for 20 years. But I have a brother and three sisters, and I'm very close to them. And they still live in the Midwest where I grew up. I'm the black sheep who left and hasn't really ever been back to live there. But I go to visit, you know, once or twice a year. And actually, prior to COVID-19 anyway, I was always there for Thanksgiving, sometimes for Christmas. And we're close. We stay in close touch. Yeah. I'm just curious if they visited your parents in particular, if they visited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I ended up just by happenstance being in a prison in the same state. So I don't know, three hour drive from St. Louis down to Springfield, something like three, four hours. And yeah, they came to visit relatively regularly. Uh, Not that I don't know how to describe it. I was there for 14 years. You know, I don't know how often they came, but they came. They were all very kind and supportive. It was difficult for my dad to come. It was just very painful for him to come visit me in prison. He did, but it was very difficult. So my mom came more often, my brothers and sisters. And my family would bring my son moved back to Peru, where his mom was from. And my family would bring him up once a year, or I don't know if once a year, every other year at least, during their Christmas season, which was, let me get this straight. <laughs> during Christmas, it's the same for everybody. But for him, that's summertime in Peru. So it was his school vacation. He would come up and stay with my older brother, who had three sons, one the same age as Robert, and he'd go to school with them a little bit while I was there. And then they would bring him down to see me on weekends. When you were arrested, did you expect to be sentenced anything close to what happened? Absolutely. I, uh, I've known I was being investigated for probably about a year before I was indicted, and they were threatening to put me in jail for you know, 30, 40 years. The only two people in my case, which, you know, if you're involved in that activity over time, you're connected to a lot of different people through various threads, whether you know them or not. And, you know, the only two people in that whole network of of activity that didn't uh, testify against somebody else to get a lighter sentence were myself and the person who had been my main partner and associate during those years. And he actually was already doing time down in the islands. And at any rate, because I refused to testify and, you know, exchange my time for somebody else's, I got charged with the kingpin statute, uh, which is why I got a no parole sentence. There's no parole for anybody in the federal system anymore. But back then there was. You don't know if you're going to get parole, but you become eligible to go to the parole board after uh, serving one third of your sentence. But this kingpin statute was uh, a no parole sentence. And that's what I was indicted with. And that's the only reason I went to trial, because I didn't really feel I was guilty of that. I was guilty of drug smuggling and I would have pled guilty to the rest of it and, you know, put myself at the mercy of the court. But at any rate, I did go to trial. And but I knew I knew they'd been threatening all along to uh, sentence me to really big time. So I, I knew what I was facing. And I actually had considered trying to take off at that time as it worked out. You know, I actually didn't have resources. And uh, the idea of being on the run the rest of my life wasn't attractive at all. But I was also scared as hell of going to prison. And I actually put it to my spiritual teacher, asked him what he felt I should do. And he sat with it for about a week. Uh, He was in a different country at the time, but I got the messages to him. And 
And then the word came back and he said, you need to stay and face it. So if you go on the run, you can't really, you know, continue your path and, and very difficult for us to have a, a relationship. And you just really need to stay and face this. And even if you're in prison for a long time, you can continue your path. And that was, uh, it was kind of a relief. It was still a very scary proposition to turn myself in, but I decided to when I was indicted and I've never regretted that. And that was actually about the first time in my life I ever actually took anybody's advice. <laughs> Interesting. And, you know, you said that you were terrified about going to prison and that's totally understandable. And, you know, there are lots of TV shows and movies that depict prison life and it's as awful as could be and scary. And how did that compare to the reality that you lived? Yeah, I was having nightmares, though, especially once, you know, I was in a county jail going through trial and sentencing for seven months before I went eventually to the federal prison. And I was just having horrific nightmares. I couldn't sleep. It was a really horrific time. I was under extreme stress, but I was practicing. I knew I had to practice. So I was practicing meditation and that was my salvation to work with my mind in that way. But I was having horrible nightmares about being raped and attacked and just, you know, all the, all the imagery you have from all the prison movies. And, you know, now they have more shows. They have these cable TV shows like Lock Up and the MSNBC stuff. You know, I, unfortunately, I hadn't watched all that, but I'd seen enough prison movies to have the images. And and uh, where I went wasn't as bad as that. It was bad enough because it was a federal prison hospital. But as I said, all the patients were from the most serious penitentiaries. So there were a lot of very serious people there. And then the people in the what they called the work cadre or general population, uh, which were there to help run the place, like myself, were either sentenced there directly like myself, and we were medium level security, or worked their way down from the penitentiaries through good behavior and, and were finishing out their time at this place. So it, the place was dangerous enough. There were just constant fights and uh, there were killings while I was there. And and you had to really watch yourself. And uh, there was a lot of violence. And so it was a dangerous place. It wasn't as bad as being at some place like, uh, you know, Lewisburg or Leavenworth or, or Atlanta, certainly. But uh, it was certainly bad enough. Do you remember uh, that first day, especially that first night that you were there? In the federal prison or in jail yeah. altogether? In the federal prison, I'm thinking of. It was actually a relief. I was, you know, still just absolutely devastated about how I'd really torched my life and what I'd done to my son. But after being in this hellhole of a county jail, it was literally a hellhole for seven months, to get to this big place where you could walk around and there was a yard you could go out on and I got a job right away, so I had something to do. And, you know, it was a completely different world. So it was actually a relief. At the same time, though, and when I got there, I was really caught up in the drama of my own situation, as you might imagine. You know, I felt my life was over. I was 35 years old the day after my sentencing, and the paper had said that I would be 65 before I had any chance of release. And so I pretty much thought my life was over. And, you know, as you could imagine, I was preoccupied with that drama. But when I got to this federal prison and I saw the amount of suffering there, you know, it was just, I saw men walking around who were blind and being aided to walk around. I saw men who were quadriplegics and paraplegics and being wheeled around in wheelchairs. I saw uh, the men coming out of the psychiatry unit, you know, doing a Thorazine two-step and, you know, just tremendous cancer patients. It, it was a place of just tremendous suffering. Well, eventually it became very humanized for me and this became my world and my community and I was deeply in relationship with it. But when I first got there, it was like some hell realm, Fellini mm -hmm. movie kind of thing of just suffering. And so that shook me out of the drama of my own life, preoccupation with my own drama. And because of the influence of my family and because of the influence of my spiritual teachers, you know, I just shifted. And so how am I going to serve in this environment? I come in here with a lot of skills. You know, I had a master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy, a three-year clinical training program. And, you know, I was well-educated and I'd been trained as a meditation teacher for 10 years. And so I just started focusing, how am I going to show up and serve? This is a, this is a hellish place. And, you know, I'm here for a reason. Hmm. Wow. Now you've mentioned your son a couple of times and he was uh, nine years old when you went to prison. And it sounds like he was visiting the U.S. because he was in Peru, but also did he visit you in jail and, on occasion? Yeah, when he came to the U.S., my family would bring him down to see me. That was one of the main reasons they brought him up. I mean, to stay connected with the family, but primarily to come yeah. see me. So, yeah, they would bring him down every weekend to see me. I mean, how did that bother with him as best I could? But you know, it's it's yeah. tough with a young young kid. You know, to sure. How did that go with him? I mean, how old is he now? Because this is a few years ago. Yeah, well, so uh, you know, I. I been asked all these questions a lot of times, and uh, you know that's why I'm trying to hit the backstory kind of briefly because. Uh, 
people often ask me, what's my relationship like with him today? And I would always tell them that it's great. We've obviously had our journey and our bumps and bruises because, you know, he had to grow up with his dad in prison. But I would always say we're very close and we stay in very close touch. But sadly, uh, this is the first time I've got to actually say say to someone in this context that I lost my son. I lost my son just over two weeks ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was back and forth between Peru and the U.S. his whole life. He came back to the U.S. once I got out of prison. And even for the last 20 years, he's been back and forth quite a bit. He worked in the restaurant industry most of his life and eventually uh, got a degree, a culinary arts degree, and became a chef and often worked in the front of the house. He was either executive chef or general manager or sommelier. Before that, he'd been a server in the front of the house, working in exclusive, independent, high-end restaurants You know, for 20 years in Peru and in, in the States other than a period where he actually tried to start a clothing line. He's a very creative person. But he was he was back in Peru at one point in 2008 and actually scouting locations for a restaurant in Cusco, Peru, which is this tourist mecca in the former Inca capital in Peru. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and beaten nearly near to death in a very popular disco restaurant bar right in the central plaza of Cusco. And I think he walked into a drug deal or something in the bathroom or something. And he was probably a bit drunk and somebody told him to get out and he probably told him to F off or something. And uh, and they beat him near to death and eventually threw him down a flight of steps and I think hit him with a lead pipe or something. And, and then the police that were there guarding the place and cahoots with that place took him a block down and just left him in the gutter. And fortunately, other police found him and took him to a a local hospital, and he was just left on a gurney there. And this was really the kind of, sadly, a difference between private clinics and the poor people's hospital. Uh, as a reality there, and he was left there and would have died, but friends of his found him and got him to a private clinic and got a hold of me. And I got down there the next day and sat at the side of his bed. He was in a coma for 10 days. And eventually he came out of that and was completely crazy with a frontal lobe head injury. And that's a whole huge story of how I eventually got him out of Peru and got him back up here and eventually got him through recovery. And and at the same time, all this was going, my partner at the time, my beloved Denise was dying and under hospice care. So that was a really intense year of my life. And eventually Robert did recover. And not long before Denise died, recovered physically, his brain started working again. It all, oh, you know, I think the blood finally reabsorbed. It took about six or seven months, but finally he was himself again. And there was quite a long emotional recovery, but he was cognitively fine. So that was 2008. In and around 2015, he started having seizures because of the scar tissue in his frontal lobes. Had to go on anti-seizure medication. And it's rare to die from a seizure, but apparently what happened, uh, he would wake up, often wake up early in the morning, like 5 a.m. or something, having a seizure. Two weeks ago on a Monday morning, his mom, uh, I bought a piece of property for him and his mom down there with a little bit of inheritance I got uh, when my parents died. And and he built a house initially for his mom. Then over the years, he built another one for himself, small houses, but kind of on the same little compound. So he was living just across from his mom and his mom hadn't heard, you know, he slept in a bit, but she hadn't heard it from him. And so she finally went to check on him around 10 a.m. and he's already gone. Right. And evidently a seizure triggered either a heart attack or we, we don't know. But anyway, so it, it's been a really rough more than two weeks now. And uh, it's hard for me to believe that he's gone, but there's been a tremendous outpouring of love from people all over the world and people from many traditions dedicating practice and prayer for him. And I've been just practicing incredibly intensely for him and praying for him. And in my tradition, the transition from one life to the next is we believe there is further life and that that transition is very important and all the prayer and support and focus really supports that person. So I've been very intensely focused on that. And I actually feel kind of energetically very confident that he's in a good way. And, you know, he was a beautiful being. He was a very, had a very pure heart and very loving, very compassionate, relational person. And I'm confident that he's doing fine. Uh, how I'm going to deal with not having him be part of my life, literally, and for the next rest of my life uh, is going to be a journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that was really difficult. I'm, I'm sorry about that. And I can barely imagine what that must be like. But I'm also thinking because of your own practice of meditation and a lot of other things associated with that, that that has to help, especially in these very, very difficult times. It does. You alluded to that as well, right, when you were in prison as something oh, that was, you just... It was the foundation of my sanity through all of that. 
I actually got to the place in prison. I was really practicing very intensely, many hours a day, and eventually receiving uh, empowerments from various Tibetan teachers in my Tibetan Buddhist tradition to do various inner yogic practices. And I was very fortunate that many of these lamas came to visit me and give me these empowerments and been very blessed. And I was doing retreats in prison where I could and doing a lot of just very intensive deep practice on a daily basis. And I got to the place where I actually lived the last 12 of the 14 years I was there really in a very cheerful state. And there was nothing to be cheerful about in that world, basically. Exactly. I was wondering about that word you just used. That's awesome. I was actually in a, a very positive mindset. You know, I was doing good work. My day job was teaching school. I got a lot of personal fulfillment from that. It was a dangerous job because I was teaching my fellow prisoners. And most school teachers who were prisoners would go hide in the corner and say, you want help? I'll help you. I'm going to leave you alone. And I didn't want to do that. I I figured out how to get in relationship with people and help them improve their lives. But, you know, you got to live with these people and, and, you know, have locks on your cells. And, you know, in the middle of the night, the littlest guy in a joint can, you know, put a lock on a sock and boom, you're dead. So, you know, I had to really figure out how to work with people. But that was my day job. It was very fulfilling, you know, nine to five, uh, Monday through Friday for 14 years. And then we started the first hospice program inside a prison anywhere in the world that we know of in 1987. And uh, we got outside people to come in and train us to do hospice caregiving. And so we were caring for the men who were dying and in the prison. And that was a huge part of my life. I spent my meal breaks and a lot of my evenings and weekends up in the hospital unit. I usually had at least two, sometimes three patients at a time that I was visiting and supporting and, and help bathing and keeping them in touch with their family and taking them out to the yard and writing letters for them and, you know, helping feed them in some cases and, you know, just doing all that kind of care, everything but medical care. And so that was a huge part of my life. And I was very involved in the 12 step work and I was teaching a twice-weekly meditation group in the chapel for 14 years. So, you know, I had a very active life. I worked out a lot to stay in good shape. And, you know, I studied three, four hours a day, practiced meditation three, four hours a day. I I was leading this kind of monastic, service-oriented yogic life. And so all of that contributed to being in a positive state. But it was really the practice that created this inner kind of, at times, almost inner joy that I had access to, even in that hellish environment. So that is really the power of the practice. And, you know, in 2008, when I lost Denise, who was my partner and beloved at that time, it really took me down. I mean, she was an incredible practitioner. Her death was incredible. She went through a cancer journey for three years. And, you know, it was an incredible experience. But when she was gone, she was gone. And I really fell apart. And I mean, I was a mess for quite a while. And, you know, in retrospect, yeah, I don't begrudge that because grief is what it is. And, and I was determined not to avoid any of the pain, but I did feel like I let it take me down too much. Like I kind of didn't hold my mind with it. You know, it's a trigger. You don't want to avoid any of the pain, but collapsing into, you know, uh, so this time around, I feel like, you know, um, I'm working with it a bit better at any rate. So what is your practice, Fleet? What is it like? What does it look like? How would you explain it? Well, the foundational practice in my tradition is basic mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath, meditation. That's foundational. And that's similar across various Buddhist traditions, whether it's Zen Buddhism or Vipassana Buddhism in this country, the insight meditation traditions or Tibetan Buddhism. In the Tibetan tradition, it's usually referenced as Shamatha Vipassana. And there's similar in other traditions, uh, similarities in within various yogic traditions, even Christian meditation, different traditions. So that's the basic. But then, you know, being part of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I've also been introduced to just a whole array of inner yogic practices where you're working really with the internal subtle energy landscape of the body. I mean, Tibet took the full breadth of Buddhism, including the Vajrayana or Tantric inner yogic Buddhism from North India, and then was isolated for 1500 years working on it. And, you know, Tibet became like the Stanford or the Harvard or or Cambridge or Oxford of, of these, you know, just the technology of mind training and mind training. So, you know, my tradition has all of that and I've been at it for 48 years. So I, I do all of that. And ultimately my practice has moved, you know, into the formless practices of Dzogchen and Mahamudra and the Zen tradition, Shikantaza. So, but it's all about working with the mind. You know, a lot of people talk about, maybe more than ever, I don't know, but it seems that way in the popular conversation about mindfulness. It's uh, almost like a discovery that's been made in the last few years. But of course, that's what has been, as you described, going on for 1,500 years, if not longer. Much longer. Right. Much longer. And I'm sure you've you've noticed that and you observed it. And I suspect you look at it as a really good thing because it's a good practice. But 
do you sometimes feel almost bemused that this has been discovered by modern society in the last few years? No, I, I get that. And some people feel that way. And I, maybe I've had that feeling once or twice, but, but not really, because I, I, you know, I've been part of that movement, not the secular mainstream mindfulness movement, which is relatively new, but I've been part of this Western Dharma and meditation movement for, mm-hmm. you know, 48 years. And so I've, I've seen all this happening. My first Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Chogim Trungpa really one of the pioneers of of bringing these kind of practices into the West. And, you know, he was kind of an iconic figure of the 20th century. So, you know, I really see it as the fruition of that. And in some ways, even, you know, some people talk about, you know, it's Buddhism light or even mindfulness light, you know, and the commercialization of it. But I really see that as the process of the culture really beginning to embrace it. And that that'll, over time, I mean, people have this worry that it's a slippery slope towards superficiality. I actually see the culture embracing it, even with so-called mindfulness light, as ultimately creating a greater cultural support for honoring those individuals who at some point in their life want to go deep and want to go deeper. So that first happened with the yoga movement, right? The yoga movement was embraced, physical hatha yoga, and that, you know, became commercialized and a lot of people criticized it. But, you know, it's been a wonderful added value and it has its more commercial qualities to it. But underlying that, most people who stay in yoga long enough, they get into the spiritual teachings underpinning those traditions. And there's amazing yoga teachers uh, in this country that are involved both in that more commercial yoga movement, but also in the deep spiritual aspect of it. So, you know, in some ways, I think it's all good. And, And actually, I've been very involved in the mainstream mindfulness movement for a long time now because, uh, you know, I've been bringing mindfulness into prisons. I spent my whole time teaching mindfulness while I was in that prison. And But I started Prison Dharma Network in 1989, just four years into my sentence, to make that more available to prisoners everywhere. And initially, it was meant to be a kind of a non-sectarian Buddhist support network for prisoners interested in Buddhism and meditation and people wanting to support them, prison volunteers and so forth. And over the early years in prison, we expanded that to include other contemplative traditions, Siddha Yoga, Hatha Yoga, Christian Centering Prayer, Contemplative Judaism, any genuinely inner work. And I don't know how many years ago now, I've been out for 20 years, but 10, 15 years, probably 15 years ago, we started feeling like, you know, the faith-based Dharma work is great in the prisons. And we still promote that very strongly to make these deep paths available to people. But the majority of prisoners don't go to the prison chapel and they won't engage in chapel programs. So we felt it very important to get mindfulness into mainstream rehabilitation programming and drug treatment programming and post-release programming and so forth. So to do that, it had to be secular and it had to be evidence-based. So we started really focusing, we developed a whole secular evidence-based program called the Path of Freedom. And we changed the name of our main brand to Prison Mindfulness Institute. So, you know, I've been doing that for a long time and and we are now, it's a, you know, it's a very large organization. It has four divisions. Prison Mindfulness Institute is bringing both Dharma-based and but mostly secular mindfulness interventions to at-risk incarcerated and re-entering youth and adults, our incarcerated fellow citizens. And then we have Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, where we're bringing mindfulness-based programming to correctional officers, probation and parole officers, police, fire, you know, the whole public safety world. Uh, We work with the U.S. Border Patrol. We're working with public safety professionals, corrections professionals around the country and in Canada. And I've taught with professionals in Europe and South America as well. And then we have another division where we're training mindfulness teachers to do the same. We have a secular mindfulness teacher training program under the Engage Mindfulness Institute. And, And so I'm very involved. I'm still deeply involved in my own Dharma path. I'm a you know, an empowered senior teacher in both the Tibetan and Zen traditions. And I work with a lot of students and I teach in those paths, but I'm also very involved in the so-called mainstream or secular mindfulness movement. And I feel they're both important. So it's really interesting. You mentioned, you know, public sector, uh, police, firemen, and other people that are out there helping in a different way. But then we have a, an image of people in that area that is not, I'm willing to guess for most people, one that will overlap a lot with this idea of meditation and mindfulness, uh, that that's, I don't know, that that's soft, that that's not real. You know, we're tougher than that. But obviously, that's not the case. But I'm curious about how the reaction has been as you've worked with and have seen that interaction and that teaching meditation and mindfulness practice with a group in society that has, most people would say, a very different mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it changed a lot. So, you know, you know, I've been out for 20 years and going back into prisons for 20 years. And we've had volunteers in our network doing that for the last 35 years. And so, 
we're continually hearing from correctional officers, you know, this is great. You're bringing these programs for prison. When's somebody going to do something for us? You know, nobody brings any of this stuff to us. Or I, I literally heard a correctional officer one time tell me, you know, this is a male prison. And the guys come out of your class all chilled out and they're very manageable. It's good for us. But then they got to deal with us and we're stressed out of our minds, you know. Mm-hmm. But when's somebody going to do something for us? So we always wanted to do that work. We finally got the opportunity in about 2010 working in Rhode Island. And we actually moved our organization from Colorado to Rhode Island to do research on that system because it just it has this big campus with eight adult facilities and two juvenile facilities all in the same area, which is really great if you're going to do research, right? And run your own programs and have, you know, curriculum program fidelity so you can do research on it. So we based, our work has been national and international all along, but we were, we moved there so we could do that research work there. And I, I had a connection with the director of the uh, Rhode Island Department of Corrections. And I met with him and his assistant director. And I you know, said my blue sky vision is to be able to get mindfulness in every aspect of your system for the uh, prisoners, the inmates, and for all your staff. And they said, well, that's great, but we don't have any money. And I said, well, we got some funding and we're ready to go. So, so we got the opportunity to start working with correctional officers and probation and parole officers and case managers and correctional counselors and so forth there. And then it just took off from there. And we're working at a lot of states now. And we developed a model called mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency. And that's basically about helping these professionals learn skills and practices that they can use off shift to heal from working in a high stress, you know, environment with continual trauma exposure, to heal from that, to, you know, top off the batteries, add more batteries to the battery pack. So become more physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually resilient. So when they go back on shift, they're not as damaged from working in that environment and they recover more easily when they go home. And then the other half of it is teaching them new ways to work that don't interfere with their job. Nobody even needs to know they're doing it. If anything, people are just going to notice that they're calmer, more present, and more high-performing because we're teaching them self-regulation skills because traditionally, most people go into a prison, the staff, and they just zoom right up into hypervigilance. And they stay, you know, eight-hour shift, 10-hour shift, a lot of them do double shifts uh, in a hypervigilant state, all jacked up. And then uh, with the bloodstream flooded with noradrenaline, adrenaline and cortisol. And then they get off shift. They don't know how to turn it off. And they used to just go to the bars and drink it off and then come back to work again with a hangover and start again. So, you know, that's incredibly damaging. And corrections finally started awakening to that about 10, 11 years ago, mainly because of the extremely high suicidality rate among their staff. And they started reaching out for help. So because of all our connections to these various systems through the work we're doing with the prisoners, they started reaching out to us through our connections and we started implementing programs and we developed this model. And now that's expanded out to beyond corrections to probation and parole and various forms of police, fire, emergency. We've even worked with the courts, with judges, prosecutors, public defenders. And it's really given people skills to take better care of themselves, self-regulation tools so they can actually enhance their performance and work in a way that's less damaging. Like when you need to be in that crisis, you know how to rise to the occasion. But when it's not crisis time, you can bring your system back down and be in the appropriate physiological, emotional, cognitive state for whatever you're doing, whether you're filling out reports or you're responding to a crisis or you're in a state of readiness on the tier or whatever you're doing. And then when you get off shift, you know how to turn it off and unmirror from that environment and go into a neutral zone and prepare to then reconnect with your family at home. Because among correctional officers is really the worst. And then very bad among police, but worse among correctional officers. The rates of anxiety, depression, suicidality off the charts, early death from all the chronic stress-related ailments, domestic violence, addictions, all of it just off the charts because of the way they were working. And, you know, they're living in that chronic stress strait, and then they have constant exposure to both primary and secondary trauma. And, you know, so it's just very destructive. So they're soaking up this like a sponge now. They just love it. I have relationships with law enforcement professionals all around the country. I'm on calls with them twice a week, and we're getting more calls. Started. I mean, besides our regular programs, we just have these weekly calls we do with whoever wants to join. And we're on these calls and, and introducing these self-regulation tools. And they're soaking it up like a sponge. And then I, I do this quarterly thing. We've created a network of public safety professionals who want to bring mindfulness into the profession at the highest levels. We have people in the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Border Patrol, all kinds of correctional agencies, police agencies. You know, I'm an ex-con and I now present at the American Correctional Association and the American Jail Association, you know, so it's. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. Uh, it's an interesting thing. 
Exactly. Now, but they're um, soaking it up because it's simple and it works. And they now yeah, realize that if they don't change, they're really doing a lot of damage to themselves. The obvious question here, I want to know what you're seeing is there's just been a, uh, a huge increase in events where police officers are doing things um, that they shouldn't, and especially to people of color and terrible things have come out. Maybe they've been going on forever and we haven't paid attention. Maybe it's the body cams that's doing it, but it's certainly in the news. And it's one of the major societal changes going on here as we are towards the end of 2020. And so I guess the question is, are you finding greater appetite and desire to understand, you use the word self-regulation, it's a really good, really good word as one of the results that comes from meditation and mindfulness practice. It seems like a really, really important thing for this community of police officers uh, more than ever before. And the question is, are you seeing the uptick? Is it partly because of that? Are they talking about some of their personal concerns, but trauma and pressure and stress, there's a lot of stress in that job as you described. And now with body cams, there's got to be fear as well. What are you seeing with police officers now? Yeah, I mean, we've gotten to the point where law enforcement in this country is a, is a very thankless job and people are leaving the profession and it's not attracting new people. So law enforcement agencies all across the country are really having trouble keeping their ranks filled. So it's mandatory overtime at huge levels, which just exacerbates all the problems we've just been referencing. So it's a bad state of affairs. And, uh, you know, it's funny for me because uh, or ironic, I guess is a better term, because I remember being back in the 60s and being, you know, calling police names and just being, you know, kind of, you know, and here I am, you know, in relationship with so many people in law enforcement and really wanting to support them. And, you know, it's not what people are hearing, but actually the number of these tragic, and one is too many, absolutely, one is too many, but these tragic police killings of unarmed people, including black people, has actually gone down steadily. You wouldn't think that from the news. It's gone down steadily. The percent of those which are uh, black people has been consistent at about 20% over the last six, seven years, but the actual number has gone down. But it has gone into the news much more, and part of it is the body cams for sure, and part of it is the world where everybody's a journalist with a cell phone. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing that it's exploded into our attention, so we really start doing something. But it actually has been improving steadily, and you wouldn't know that from the news. So police are getting a really black eye here. And certainly there are bad apples out there. And we need not only the mindfulness training. I think a lot of these tragedies happen because of police officers who act in a reactive way out of fear. And, you know, you also got to take into account the society we live in with our issue with guns. You know, I mean, any police officer that pulls somebody over and is going to approach that car has to assume there is a real danger that that person might be armed. So, you know, it's a tremendous amount of fear. And, you know, this is not to justify or excuse any of the mistakes that have been made. And, you know, there may be as well some real racism among certain officers. I mean, there is, there's no question. But these are the bad apples that are in the minority. And there's probably some implicit biases throughout law enforcement, as there is throughout society, and that needs to be dealt with. So we're trying to develop trainings that include giving people the self-regulation skills so they can stop and make a better decision in the moment, be less reactive. You know, it's the same kind of training that elite military units are getting, have been getting for quite a while. They all train in mind training because, you know, that split second difference between life and death is the ability to make the right decision. And so police need a lot more training. That's why this whole thing about defund the police is nonsensical. We need to fund them more with better training and recruiting a higher quality of individuals into the profession because they're critical to our overall security. And the vast majority of police are out there putting their lives on the, the line every day to keep the rest of us safe. So absolutely, I think mindfulness training needs to be a critical part of law enforcement training altogether. And there's there's some interest now in getting it into the academies where most people go through some kind of academy training before they go into active duty. And I think it needs to be integrated with awareness training around what implicit biases we may hold. So when they approach a citizen or if they regard someone as a suspect or if they're just pulling someone over, that they're not acting differently because of the skin color of a person or the way they're dressed, but they just objectively assess the situation using their good training and mindfulness practice. So it's a very necessary thing. and There's a lot of openness to it. I have a colleague who's an African-American chaplain in a state correctional system, and we're working together to develop a program that's going to include integrate mindfulness training, 
anti-racism training and training in something called nonviolent communication that was developed by Marshall Rosenberg, which is a very effective tool for relating with people and getting better results than some of our usual ways of communicating. So, you know, this is just a much needed thing. And, you know, we need to get to the place where one of the problems we're in now right now, though, is this is a big country. You know, this is a big country and there are going to be mistakes and we need to try to get those mistakes down to zero. But I, I doubt if it'll ever be zero. But we're in a place now where one mistake and the way our news works and, you know, it, we're going to be right back in. And, and it's very difficult to help people understand that we are making progress and that we can make progress. Yeah. I understand exactly what you're saying. And I also know that you've spoken out about a related issue, which is the uh, mass incarceration of African-American men, mm-hmm. young men in particular. So you know more about this firsthand and from your own work than most people. But it's important to point out that when 20% of these events where unarmed black people are shot or, or hurt by police, you know, black people don't make up 20% of the population. No, they don't. It's about 13%. So, you know, that's high. But also if you look at And again, you can trace this back to all kinds of structural oppression and all the way back to slavery and all kinds of problems and to racism within our criminal justice system. But the number of police contacts between police and black people in this country is extremely high, levels of crime and all the rest of it. And these are things we need to deal with. If you just look at the numbers, it's not that surprising where things are at and it has been improving and we need to keep making it improve further. Uh, But it's helpful to be able to look at this objectively. I mean, we're emotional beings. We're always going to have emotional responses. But I think if we're going to have rational policy and and invest in the right things, we need to be able to really look at the actual data and have genuine conversations about it. And if we do that, we're not going to talk about defunding the police. We're going to talk about how to recruit a higher level of recruits into the profession. We're going to talk about deepening their training and improving their training, which is actually going to require maybe more funding in some cases. Now, maybe diverting some funding into so, you know, people talk about, you know, some citizens who are struggling should be dealt with by trained psychologists instead of police. And that's absolutely true. I mean, we force the police to deal with all kinds of stuff, but psychologists are not going to go when you have a domestic violence call, they're not going to go knock on that door. In fact, there's been a lot of publicity. The psychology profession has refused. We're not going to do that. You know, and that's one of the most dangerous things that police do is a domestic violence call, right? You know, these are complex issues. And I think we need to be able to take a data-based approach to it, uh, even though they're very emotional issues. Right. And, you know, when you do look at the data, the number of black people that are stopped in their cars by police is incredible. And, you know, there's a numerator and a denominator. And the greater the number of people in the denominator that you're actually pulling over to the side, it increases the odds of something happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of bias issues like that. And And this is starting to be a little bit more well-documented, I think, or maybe it has been documented, but maybe it's being disseminated more to majority populations. But I think this idea of mindfulness training and other work of the type that uh, you've been involved with is got to be helpful for people that have high stress jobs. We're talking about, you know, correction officers. We're talking about police officers. You could talk about people on Wall Street. You can talk about some teachers. In fact, you could talk about a lot of careers, military, you mentioned as well. I want to ask you, and this is, we've been talking almost for an hour, and so we're going to need to wrap up soon. But I'm wondering whether it's possible for you to explain or provide perhaps some tips. So if I think about my listeners, I'm going to say 100% know or have heard about mindfulness. 99% have heard about meditation. Maybe 50% have tried it. Maybe 25% are regular practitioners. Well, that would leave 75% who are not. And, you know, in the space of a couple of minutes, you can only do so much. But is there something you could say, some tips, some ways for people to get started who know that this could be useful for them that would like to try and want to go beyond just looking at an app that says, uh, you know, think about something good in your life today. Uh, Is there something that you could suggest kind of as a way to get started for some people who are interested? Absolutely. And, you know, it's something I think about a lot. And uh, actually, the majority of people who start a meditation practice don't continue. You know, even in the work we're doing with law enforcement, we're getting a lot of them to pick up on some mindfulness-based self-regulation tools we're doing, like some simple things like straw breathing and box breathing, things that you can quickly regulate your own physiology. How many of them are becoming regular mindfulness practitioners? That's much lower. And, you know, all the complaints, my mind's too busy, I can't do it, I don't have time, you know, all the things. So the majority of people that start a meditation practice do not continue. And I believe one of the reasons is, you know, all the excuses of being busy in my crazy mind, and all the rest of it, sure. But it's really because they're not given good instruction, good technique to begin with. Now, 
I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the you get an app or you listen to stuff online or or you you know somebody's doing a mindfulness uh, class at the local Y or something. You know, it's probably decent instruction. But I've actually developed an approach I call neurosomatic mindfulness, which uh, emphasizes a deeply embodied approach to the practice and is about accessing kind of internal neurobiofeedback loops that I feel can allow new practitioners to get results much more quickly such that they're going to have a reason to keep going. Because when you first start practicing, many people are just kind of practicing from the neck up, right? And, you know, they notice the mind drifted off. Okay, I got to go back to my breath. And it drifts off and go back to their head's just bouncing up there like a ping pong ball. And it's not really, it's boring, it's hard, and they're not really getting a lot of benefit from it. You know, they might get a few moments, oh, that felt a little peaceful, but it's not tangible enough to outweigh all the distractions that pull them away from it and mm-hmm. the boringness of it and the difficulty in doing it. So I teach a model that gets people into their body very quickly to anchor you in your practice. Because if you have a deeply felt physical presence of your body, it's just like a, it's like lead in your butt, right? It's just weight, you know, it's that physical presence that makes it harder for the mind to wander, easier for it to come back. And then by developing what we call interoceptive awareness, which we all have that internal perception, interoception, it's how we know when we're thirsty, hungry, when we need to use the restroom and so forth. But we're usually only aware of it when there's discomfort. And we can actually tune into it when there isn't discomfort and develop in access to this abiding aliveness, energetic presence in the body. And through doing that, we can eventually, I believe, learn to consciously switch from what's called the default mode network in our brain, which is that busy, noisy part of our brain, was ruminating about the past, fantasizing, worrying about the future, forming all of our opinions, building up our identities. It's the ego formation and noisy. It's where all our stress is created. And what's called the task positive network in the brain when we're focused. Anybody will notice if you're really focused on something, your mind quiets down dramatically because mm-hmm. these two networks are mutually inhibitory. So to the extent that you engage the task positive network, you're disengaging the busy part of the brain that makes it so hard to meditate. So I train people to get into the body more quickly and deepen that interoceptive awareness, which not only does it make your practice more effective, but deeper interoceptive awareness increases resilience. It increases emotional intelligence. It enhances our capacity for physiological, emotional, and cognitive self-regulation. And so it's just a win, 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 win. And so that's why I emphasize this really deeply embodied approach to meditation. And I'm getting results with that and finding people get the uptake much more quickly because they're going, wow, this actually does something and I can do it. Now, Philippe, that's a really comprehensive, I'm going to say, approach or system. I don't want to say, I don't want to ask you to dumb it down, but is there is there a tip that anyone listening can hear you say then say, yeah, you know, I could do this now if I wanted to do this. Absolutely. You could uh, do what? it now. Why, why don't we just do it? So okay. If just stop for a moment. Uh, You might close your eyes just to focus. You don't have to, but bringing your attention to the body and just feeling whatever you can feel there. You may begin with the contact points between your body and the chair, cushion, feet in the ground, feeling the weight of your clothing, contact between your clothing and your skin. If your mind is wandering, just keep coming back and coming back. The passage of air across the nostrils and parted lips. So you have this whole landscape of physical sensation all across the body from head to toe. And then from there, because a lot of people say focus on the body, focus on their breath. Well, those are just concepts. Those are words, but they point to a direct experience. And we have to kind of penetrate beneath the conceptual level. They're really open to feeling the body, feeling the sensation directly. So we start with the outer landscape, and then we go to the inner landscape of the weight and mass of muscles and bones. Any discomfort that's there, aches or pains, stiffness, the heartbeat, the overall flow of nervous energy in the body, and awakening to the fact that our entire body is living tissue, all sensory, all the way down to the bones and including the bones, all containing neuronal cells, all connected to the central nervous system. So you start exploring that inner landscape of sensate experience in the body, and it really grips our attention, and it's easy for anyone to do. How long does it take? Well, we just did it. Good answer. That's three minutes, four minutes. And how do you feel when you're done? Well, my listeners will will tell me, but I think you're meant to feel a little bit more calm. Maybe um, it's as good a word as any. I mean, if you really, the other thing you tap in there, if you just do that really quickly and just close yeah. your eyes and just feel the body as deeply as you can and just, mm-hmm. you know, make enough effort to just keep coming back to it, coming back to it. See if you can mm-hmm. feel more deeply, find your heartbeat, 
really feel into the body. And you start to tap into just the quality of being present, like I'm here. And you don't have to voice the I part because that's not, there's just existence, just being this presence. And you tap into a quality of being that is to begin with physical. It also includes all the other sensory perception and it's emotional and it's cognitive, but to begin with it's physical beingness, physical presence. And within that beingness, you just tap into an innate wholeness and peace because there's just this being that you can experience. And you could ask yourself, to the extent that I actually feel this kind of beingness, is there anything missing there? Or is there anything I could add to it that would make it more complete? And the answer is no, because you realize it's just pure being. And that pure beingness is the foundation for inner peace, serenity, self-regulation, access to compassion, access to all of our higher human abilities and capacities. And you've actually, you've done something like this. Maybe you do this every day still, but as long as four hours at a time when you were in prison, as, as you've written about, that's kind of amazing to keep that form of intensity. I know it's kind of the opposite of intensity at the same time. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot. I mean, that's that's kind of amazing. People are not going to start that way unless they become practitioners and actually uh, become right, very even serious. Start, even if you start with five minutes, you know, you start with five yeah, minutes. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I've done so many retreats throughout my life. You know, I've done multiple three-month retreats, a month-long retreats where you're practicing 12, 14 hours a day. So, you know, that's, but you start off with five minutes. You start off with five minutes. With good instruction, I feel like you can very quickly start tapping into the experience that some people don't have till they've been meditating for 20 years because they're too busy just chasing thoughts and back and forth and they never got the body involved and they don't have instruction that takes them into the inner landscape of the body. And so I think it makes a world of difference for newcomers as well. People have been practicing for a long time. It can radically deepen their practice quickly. So I have one last question, but I just want to remark that I don't know if you've read the books by Yuval Harari, who's written about sapiens and really become a giant global thought leader. And one of the books that I read was something like 20 lessons or 20 answers. I can't remember for the 20th century or 21st century, really. Mm -hmm. And he talks about so many difficult, intractable problems. And at the end, his solution was yoga. Uh, and a retreat. And he goes away, I think, perhaps for a month, a year. And it was quite remarkable because he didn't let on about any of that until you get towards the end of the book. And then the other thing I just want to mention quickly is I had a guest on the SIDCast uh, in season one, at the end of season one in January of uh, this year, Cal Newport's his name. And uh, he's a th- also a thought leader, professor at Georgetown, uh, has written many books, and he's written about focus. And the quality of work, I think he was even a a university student when he took on this project where he said he noticed that there were students that were the absolute best of the best. He went to Dartmouth. And so a lot of smart kids around. And he said, they're the best of the best. And then there were the really, really good ones. And he wanted to know what the difference was. And the top, top students didn't work as hard as the next tier. And he thought, wow, how in the world that? And he started interviewing them and then doing the underlying research. And what he found is that they focused at a much deeper, higher level. And so there, if you want to call it return on investment, uh, was much, much higher. And both those examples connect quite nicely to some of the lessons and some of the ideas you've been been sharing. Absolutely. Focus is everything. And the core of what I teach, I mean, I have my radical responsibility model I teach, which is about embracing each and every circumstance in our life 100%, not out of self-blame. It's a trans-blame, beyond-blame model. It's because the only place we have any power, that's with ourselves. So that kind of radical ownership and then growth mindset that sees whatever circumstances we're facing, no matter how awful or terrible or unjust they might be, are leveraged opportunities for growth if we shift our mindset in that direction. And then having the tools to do that and mindfulness and this deeply embodied approach to mindfulness allows us to get deeply in relationship with ourselves to be able to do that. Because otherwise, we're just barraged by a tsunami of distraction and everybody trying to run our lives. And we're either going to live our life so that we're actually living our life and directing our life and designing our life with intentionality. We can't control it, but we can be at least in the co-pilot seat with our life because otherwise, you know, life is happening to us. You know, my first teacher said, either you learn to ride a donkey or the donkey rides you. And for most of us, we're letting life happen to us. And we, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel kind of victimized by it and often resentful or entitled or this or that, but we're not taking agency to actually direct our own life. And to do that, you need the mindset to do it But then you also need the tools. You need to be embodied enough because we're up against the human condition. You know, our biology has developed this fear and survival-based biology, which is going to constantly throw us in that fear and survival-based reactive mode unless we develop the resilience to stay in the relational 
responsive conscious mode with life and it takes work but it's very doable and the payoffs are immediate when you start doing it yeah it's interesting because i do a fair amount of work on strategy and i've taught that topic and written about that and a company has a strategy all the time whether they know it or not absolutely wouldn't it be much better to know about it and kind of be more purposeful? And it's a direct kind of corporate, if you will, or business analogy to what you're saying. Okay, the last question is a question I ask all my guests at the end. In some ways, you have answered the question over the last hour, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. It's about advice, but it's specific advice that you'd give to yourself. So if you could kind of magically go back and I could imagine what life was like when you were 21 years old and you were often doing your thing and you've described some of it already. If you were to kind of go back in time magically and sit next to the 21-year-old fleet mall and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to do, if there's one thing you want to think about that you should do, that you should not do, that's important in life, this is it. What would be that one thing that you would highlight? Yeah, well, literally, I don't know what it would take to break through the haze of that 21-year-old, but... (laughs) But you know what I would want to tell that person or any person, and this is going to sound a little bit cliche, but you can absolutely do anything you want, anything you set your mind to, right? And so don't believe all the lies because we all absorb all these lies about ourselves and what we can do and what we can't do and all the the self-doubt and self-hatred. We just absorb this in a culture and all the blame and shame stuff. We absorb all those lies. So I would just don't believe any of it, no matter if it came from your own parents, no matter how well intended it was, don't believe any of it. You know, get into self-agency, make your own decisions and never give up. Just that's the main message. Never give up on yourself. Never give up on life and just really believe in yourself and just shut out all the lies and focus on what you've always known is true is that you have a reason to be here and you can find it and act on it. That's great. Fleet Mall, thank you so much for being on the Sidcast, sharing your your wisdom and your experience and being very open about many of the personal challenges that you've dealt with over the years. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sid. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please Give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.